He was the quarterback of his high school football team here in town and was unable um, to even complete the, his last game of the season without having to get on the train at halftime. And the fans all waved as the train took off and left the station. He was injured in 1942, 43, and he sent a letter home to his parents. He was unable to write it himself, but his friend typed it for him and explained that he'd been injured and that his friend was sending the letter. Um, and he told his parents he wanted his sister to find a nice boy and that he hoped his brother was behaving and that he'd be home soon because the war should end soon. Unfortunately, that letter arrived after the car pulled up to tell the parents that he had been killed. Um, he was buried in the Pacific, and then when the war was over, was brought back to Raleigh. Welcome back to the Beyond the Obituary podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm your host, Jason Gillikin, and today's show is going to be a little bit different. On the first episode, you heard about Jonathan Hill, a pilot and father of three who passed away at 43. And on the second episode, you heard from Nancy and Dan Leffler, who tragically lost their daughter Leah at age 17. Both of those episodes were so powerful because they showed the strength of the people who lost their loved ones way too early. And on most of the episodes, we'll be profiling people who have passed on to hear their stories beyond what's written in their obituary. But some episodes, like the one today, we'll be profiling people in the death industry, like hospital chaplains, therapists, clergy, and, like our guest today, cemetery directors. That guest is Robin Simonton, Executive Director of Historic Oakwood Cemetery in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. Heather Hill, who you might remember from episode one, is a funeral director at Renaissance Funeral Home, and she and Robin work closely together on many projects, including co-hosting Death Cafe, the monthly meetup for anyone who wants to talk about death and grieving in a non-denominational, non-judgmental way. But Heather asked me to contact Robin because of Robin's passion for the history of the cemetery and some of the interesting things that she and her team are doing at Oakwood. So when I went to Oakwood to interview Robin, I drove through the stone archway gate and noticed right away just how massive and impressive it is. I drove around and could have spent hours there in awe of all the headstones in history. I found out later that the cemetery has 190 acres and over 25,000 people are buried there. And it's been around since 1869, which means it's celebrating a pretty significant anniversary this year. And the people who are buried at Oakwood, if you go to their Wikipedia page, it's like a who's who of North Carolina politicians, Civil War generals, and a lot of people who have high school and middle schools in the Triangle named after them. So needless to say, there's a lot of history at Oakwood, and that's one of the parts of the job that Robin absolutely loves. So on the show today, Robin talks about that history, stories of some of the people buried at Oakwood, green burial and the evolution of societal norms and funerals, the Death Letters Project at Oakwood, and even how Coco, the movie, has helped parents talk about death. Now for Robin, she hasn't always been in the cemetery industry. She had always found them to be fascinating outdoor museums, but as of 2011, she was working in a completely different industry. I was working at the Girl Scouts here in Raleigh. Um, a, a woman that was on the staff here at the time came to me and asked if we could do a program together. We did. We created a Girl Scout program called Monumental Fun for um, Girl Scout brownies and juniors. And then I began to give tours here. I have a bachelor's in history and a master's in historical administration. Um, and I, I'm a big museum fan. And I've given tours before of historic sites and so I began to give tours and help cemetery social media. And then in 2011, the director was retiring from Oakwood, and the board asked if I was interested in applying to take that job to fill his shoes. And I haven't looked back since. It's a, it's a dream job, even though I didn't see it coming as a child. Yeah. 
Wow. Um, so like why you said you've always been interested in, in cemeteries. What drew you to, to cemeteries? Um, well, number one, I think most of the, like, like many people around the, around Oakwood Cemetery, it's the, um, the peaceful nature of them. You know, they were, um, certain cemeteries, especially like Oakwood were designed for the living with flowering trees and, um, shrubs and, um, meaningful headstones that you can read. And, and I was drawn to that, learning the history of the place, even of my own hometown. Um, and then in, as an undergrad at the University of Hawaii, I did volunteer work in Oahu Cemetery in the Mission Houses Museum um, Missionary Cemetery. And then in graduate school, I studied Amish cemeteries in Illinois. And they each can teach you something, regardless of what style they are, what kind of headstones they have, but they each can teach you something about the community in which um, those people lived. Yeah, it's true. And that's kind of the point of the, the podcast is to tell these stories. And, you know, everybody has a story, like every, every grave, every headstone mm-hmm. has some sort of story. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of the point of the Beyond the Obituary podcast. So what's life like in the cemetery? Like, what does a, a day-to-day look like? I'm, I'm guessing there is no normal day-to-day. That's exactly right. There is no normal day-to-day. And, and I, on the days I come in with the plan are always the days that those plans get shot out of the water pretty quickly. Yeah. But, you know, so at any given point, a family can come in to look at property pre-need or at need. Funeral homes call, trying to schedule funerals. People come in trying to find their loved one's graves. Tourists come in to look at interesting headstones and want a map. Uh, and then then we ourselves can fall down the rabbit hole um, doing historic research, uh, working on our artifacts or our collection on any given day. So there's always something to do. There is never a day where we're sitting here going, oh, there's nothing to do here. So, um, but in any given moment, you can be working on something, you know, historical or paperwork wise. And then a family comes in that, that has experienced the loss and everything obviously has to stop. So, right. So is there a favorite part of your job? Mm, I, I, um, kind of, it's, it's, I would have thought years ago when I started, that would be the historic research. And of course, um, that's a, a, a top one. Documenting the lives of the over 25,000 people that rest here is a job that will never be finished in my lifetime. So there's always some good research. But the most rewarding part of my job is really working with families. It's also the toughest part of my job. Mm-hmm. You say 25,000. Mm-hmm. So there's 25,000 headstones here. Uh, there's probably more than that just because there's family monuments and then um, footstones and things like that. But, um, but yes, so t- 25,000 people rest here. Yes. Uh, okay. So it is very historic. <laughs> like, yeah, 150 years ago, last month, we just started. So uh, 150 yeah, years ago, last February. month. Yep. Was our anniversary date. Wow. What did you do for the anniversary? Um, so we kicked off a year of commemorations on February 26th, 2019. And we placed wreaths at the first two burials um, in the cemetery that we can trace. Um, the first one was William Andrews, who died not even 30 years old, I don't think. And he died of consumption. Um, and we had his great-great-great-nephew place a wreath on his grave, and a blessing was given by the minister from Church of the Good Shepherd. Oh, wow. And our second burial was Max Erlanger in our dedicated Hebrew section. He was our second burial. We had a big gap between our first and second. He died in the first died in January of 1869 before we incorporated and the second, and Mr. Erlanger died in August of 1869. And we had a representative from the Raleigh Hebrew Cemetery Association place a wreath and Rabbi Lucy Dinner from Temple Bethor give a blessing. And our historian gave a brief talk putting Oakwood Cemetery in historical context. It was an event attended by about 70 people, friends and family um, of the early um, adopters um, of the cemetery. That is amazing. 
I mean, how do you keep track of all this information over 150 years? Yeah, well, you do the best you can. And, and obviously, we are limited by the record keepings of 150 years ago. And yeah. um, our second, actually third superintendent, maybe second, was here for 50 years, almost 50 years. But he didn't always have an office on the grounds. And so our records from the early years are, are a little sketchier. As you can imagine, 150 years ago is a long time. Yeah. <laughs> and so once his office was here um, in 1910... Our records kind of normalize a little bit. Okay. And so you have a historian then on staff that, that well, does all this? we have a volunteer historian uh-huh. who also lives in the Oakwood neighborhood. And he does a lot of the research and has written two books about the cemetery and the neighborhood. And then he and I have also co-authored a book um, that came out last year about the cemetery itself. And we have a volunteer archivist who handles our historic documents and makes sure that we're keeping them in good in good order and that there's a finding aid and things like that so we can a- access what we have. Well, don't don't be shy. What are what are the books? <laughs> you can you can plug your books. <laughs> uh, so, uh, Bruce wrote um, two books, Oakwood to Oakwood 1 and Oakwood to Oakwood 2 uh-huh. about the people who built the neighbor lived in the neighborhood, helped build the city and are buried here. And then Bruce and I co-authored the book, one of those Arcadia publishing books, Images of America, Historic Oakwood Cemetery. Wow. Um, that gives the history of the cemetery, but also um, synopsis of um, interesting people that are buried here. Okay. For you then, who are the one or two of the most interesting people that are that are buried here? Mm-hmm. Well, so I have favorites. My favorites rotate as I find more stories and uh-huh. go back and do more research. Um, one of my all-time favorites is Bobby Crocker, who's buried just outside the cemetery office. He died in World War II. Um, he had been drafted as a freshman, uh, as a senior in high school. Um, his father went to the draft board and asked if he could complete high school, and the draft board said no. He was the quarterback of his high school football team here in town and was unable um, to even complete the, his last game of the season without having to get on the train at halftime. And the fans, the train station was very close to the stadium, and the fans all waved as the train took off and left the station. He was injured in 1942, 43, and he sent a letter home to his parents. He was unable to write it himself, but his friend typed it for him and explained that he'd been injured and that his friend was sending the letter. Um, and he told his parents he wanted his sister to find a nice boy and that he hoped his brother was behaving and that he'd be home soon because the war should end soon. Unfortunately, that letter arrived after the car pulled up to tell the parents that he had been killed. Mm. Um, he was buried in the Pacific. And then when the war was over, was brought back to Raleigh. And the funeral was huge and had to be held after school hours so that his classmates could come. And his brother just died last fall. Um, but his brother had been the keeper of Bobby Crocker's story um, for all these years. And his brother would come with his little yellow folder and give me photographs and stories. And and he really just kept Bobby's story alive all those years. So while we were not here, obviously, when Bobby died, the loss of his brother Billy was was heartbreaking for us because he helped keep Bobby alive. And now that's somewhat of our job, right, is to tell Bobby's story as much as possible. Yeah. My other second favorite burial is another World War II not of World War II death, but a World War II veteran. And it's Myrtle Mills Hilton. She was a member of what is now the CIA, but then known as the OSS. But so she was the stenographer for the War Crimes Tribunal for Tojo, the mastermind of Pearl Harbor. Tojo friended her, and that was very controversial. And she would bring him his favorite candy bars. He had a sweet tooth. And we have a photo in our collection of the two of them standing together. It made the paper here, and people wondered if she was a traitor and all this. But he liked her because he did not like the military men that were were part of the room. And so he bonded with her as an insult to them. Hmm. Um, 
and and he, she comes from a very colorful family in Raleigh. Um, she has a brother that's in his 90s that is still a practicing attorney in the, in North Carolina. And, wow. Um, so they they also, just like Bobby's family, carry on the family stories, which are, it's not, it's a gift not just to have the stories of these people that are buried here, but to have their families get excited to share the stories with us. So that's, those are two of my all-time favorites, probably. Wow. I, I mean... Those are amazing stories. And <laughs> so Heather Hill is the funeral director mm-hmm. at Renaissance and uh, she's on episode one of the Beyond the Obituary podcast here. She asked me, and you, you were closely with her, mm-hmm. I think. She asked me to ask you about the Death Letters Project. What, mm-hmm. what is the, the Death Letters Project? So um, as part of our 150th anniversary, the cemetery, um, led by myself and our photographer in residence, Michael Pelko, um, had talked in January of 2018 of doing a big project over the course of the year of our 150th anniversary. And we really didn't know what we wanted to do, but we wanted to do something impactful. Of course, who doesn't, you know, going in, big dreams. And then I saw on social media a woman by the name of Tina Fiveash out of Australia who had created the original Death Letter Project. That project in Australia was part of her PhD And she found people from across the continent, and she would ask them two questions, what is death and what happens when we die? And then she would release these letters once a week and take a, have a picture taken of them in their environment. They were an artist, you know, with their art supplies. And we, Michael and I talked ad nauseum about that, of could we do that? What would that be like? What would that, what questions would we ask here? So we reached out to Tina, which is hard when you're excited about a project, but the time difference is so vast in Australia. So you're like going to bed hoping you'll get an answer um, the next day because of the time difference. And she gave us her permission, our, her permission to do the Death Letter Project North Carolina. Our project is a little different than hers. We don't just ask those two questions. Um, we ask about how has death impacted your life and tell us a story about death that changed the way you look at life. And we also take portraits like Tina does, but we take black and white photographs with a black background because death is the great equalizer. So we have been working on this since January of 2018. In April of 2018, we sent out 200 invitations, not knowing how many would we would receive back from people across the state, um, giving them two months to answer these questions. And then, of course, we've had to add more invitations, and, and we continue to add invitations, and people continue to ask to participate. In January of 2019, we released our first letter, and we release letters on the 1st and 15th of every month. Michael, once the letter comes, Michael transcribes it and sets up, an inter- sets up a time to take a photograph of the participant. And it has been probably the most meaningful project I've done in the seven years I've been the director here. It is a little bit like Christmas when the letter arrives and um, get to see what people think about life and death. And we're so grateful that people want to share this with us. So how many did you get? You said you, you um, we, sent out 200. Yeah, so we sent out 200. We have enough. We probably have maybe 40. I mean, that, and that's not... That's great. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's crazy to think we wanted so many more. But, but every letter is so good that we are content with what we have. And when I got here this morning, there was one in the mail today. And so they still are coming. We released one from um, Elrico Fowler, who's a death row inmate in North Carolina's death row. Oh, my gosh. Um, and that one uh, was spectacular. They're all spectacular. They're all intimate. And my photographer says that the first time, the first one, he let his um, 17-year-old son read. The son said, oh, I feel like that's so personal, like I shouldn't be reading it. But that's how intimate they are. People are kind of bearing their souls. And I sat down and wrote my own 
because I didn't think it was fair to ask other people to write one if I wasn't going to write one. And I really didn't know what to write. But then I guess it was in January, my friend called and said, I, I only have a few weeks left to live. And I, and it was a very uh, kind of eye-opening moment for me. And I sat down and, and wrote one then. But we uh, we were very grateful for the participation and grateful for the dialogue that has been inspired by these Um if I if I'm anywhere in, in a public speaking role or have a meeting here in the grounds and people have read them, there's always a conversation about what someone learned from one or what it reminded them of. And um and it's great. And we partnered with Duke University Hospital in Durham in November as kind of a sneak peek for their grief National Grief Awareness Week. And we released three letters early oh, wow. um, and put them on big designed boards that were then on exhibit at the hospital for people to read. We, we're grateful for the partnership with Duke and grateful that people are reading them and participating, yeah. you know, and in commenting and sharing on social media. And, and it's, it's a very special project and one that will continue past the 150th year because of the an extra amount that we have received. So, yeah, absolutely. Wow. That is powerful. So you said people are, are learning a lot every time they're reading these. What have you learned or what have people told you that they've learned from, from this? Um, well, I think. That's a good question of what I've learned. I mean, I, when, when one of these comes in the mail and I sit down and read them, I'm always so moved by their personal experience with death. And even if the letter isn't necessarily about their own personal experience with death, and if, but if I happen to know if the person has a family member buried here or whatever, seeing what, reading what they say and then putting it in context with what I know is pretty powerful. The other thing it's really reminded me of is that death really affects every single one of us. Being in the death industry, I'm kind of, I'm not ever numb to it, but I'm around death more than the average person is around death. Sure. Um, and so when someone writes me a letter and says how, you know, one person's death has impacted them, it reminds me that it isn't just, you know, like for me, I could, I feel, I always worry I'm going to get numb to it. But then hearing how death impacts one person on one level is a good reminder of how important life is and how, how fragile and fleeting life really is. And I think people have been stunned by some of these letters in a good way. When I see people, when they share them on social media and they say, oh, this is exactly how I feel, or, or I don't know how I feel about this, you know, I feel like we've done a good thing for our community to be able to share it. It's pretty eye-opening, every single one of these letters. So. Yeah. So at the Renaissance, and, and you've partnered with them, they do Death Cafe. And I, I went to one uh, last month. Mm -hmm. And it was it's just a way to, to talk about death mm -hmm. that most people aren't able to do. It's, uh, it's very interesting to, to hear how people are impacted by death, how people are afraid to talk about death, mm -hmm. and, and just what it means to them. And so that, you know, the, the death letters that you talk about, that is such an important project that you're working on. And so people can realize that, okay, I'm not alone in my feelings. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and I, I said recently in an interview with the local magazine that death is not baggage, but it's something that we all carry with us. Um, and that's true. You know, you, in, in a death cafe is so special because it's face to face. People are discussing it. We used to host them in the cemetery's mausoleum a number of years ago and have staff from Transitions Life Care when we hosted them. And, and we would get 70 people at a time wanting to come to these events and being in the room and being present. And you realize that how much we're all affected because in America today, we tend to sanitize death and mm -hmm. sanitize grieving. And so a death cafe, while not a counseling session by any means, is an opportunity for folks to kind of get off their chest 
what they've been thinking about death and how it has felt with them. And I've, I've been at Renaissance for a few death cafes and I had been sitting next to a woman that um, was very ill and her perspective on death was somewhat comforting to me, you know, that she knew she was facing it and whether she was scared or not, or um, how she was feeling in that given week was pretty special to be able to have that intimate conversation with someone going through something so personal. Yeah. And that's kind of something that I learned too, is we need to be okay with people's different experiences. And it's not something that we're very good at. And they talked a lot about the platitudes that Mm -hmm. people will give you the, oh, he's in a better place or, or things like that, which you don't really think about, but it's kind of dismissing your ability to grieve and that is okay to grieve and be however you feel uh, about, about this, this whole death that, that you're experiencing, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's you personally going through it or whether it's a, a loved one going through it, you know, you need to be allowed to grieve however you want to grieve. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't have to apologize for it mm-hmm. and you don't have to, you know, go by whatever other people are telling you. And anyway, so that was, that was something that I I didn't realize before, um, but having done this podcast and gone, gone to Death Cafe has changed my perspective on, on a lot of things. So that's important work that, uh, that you're doing with, yeah. with Death Cafe and, and then with the, the Death Letters Project. Some, uh, some changes that have been going on in cemeteries and in funerals and cemeteries mm-hmm. over the years. I mean, I imagine that there have been a ton of changes over the last 150 years and probably some changes since you've been here. Mm-hmm. You talk about green burial some. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What is green burial? Well, so green burial is a way to return to the earth in a, in a simpler way, but also in a way that is, for us at Oakwood, more historic because it's very similar to how um, burials were conducted 150 years ago. So while a lot of things change, like you said, some things have changed back to the beginning. And so here at Oakwood, green burial means that you're not embalmed, although you do not have to be embalmed in any section of the cemetery but you are not allowed to be embalmed in the green burial section. You are in a biodegradable box, shroud, wicker, casket, things like that, and you are not in an outer burial container, colloquially known as a vault in the cemetery industry. And so you simply are just put back into the earth to decompose. And we opened that section, geez, maybe three years ago this April, and we have sold a number of grave spaces, have almost sold out the green burial section, looking at what our next options are, and have buried about 20, 25 people in that section in those years. And I have found that every funeral at Oakwood, every burial at Oakwood is a beautiful burial in many ways. But the green burial section, without the mechanisms of the vault and the machinery around that, is a, is a lot more intimate of a funeral. And people don't seem to be as afraid in some ways of the of the body being there. And I think because in, a, in the rest of the cemetery, there's a lot of machinery, whether you realize it's machinery or not. Um, there's the vault itself, and people are somewhat afraid to get too close, right? Because you don't want to fall in, you don't want to cause something to happen, everyone's kind of afraid. Um, but in the green burial section, without all that encumbrance, um, people seem to get a little closer and participate a little differently. So it's just a different type of funeral. And we started that three years ago because, quite frankly, I wanted to be green buried, and I wanted to follow the tradition of the people who have run this place that they're buried here. But I didn't want the vault and the other things. I respect everyone's choice to have what they're most comfortable with and what their family's most comfortable with. But that's what that's what, what my wish was. And we're so lucky here in the Triangle to have Pine Forest and Wake Forest, which was the first green burial ground 
probably in the state of North Carolina, and is an amazingly magical place in the woods. Um, and we knew we couldn't be that cemetery in the woods like Pine Forest. We didn't have the forest to do that. And so we created our, um, with the help of Pine Forest, they were extremely generous with their time and support. We created Mordecai's Meadow um, here at Oakwood, which is a more of an urban green burial ground. I, would, I believe Pine Forest is conservation land, where ours is not. Ours would be considered more of a hybrid green burial ground. We do allow headstones, for example. They just can't be polished. Um, we go back to the more earlier days of green burial and Oakwood, of traditional burial in Oakwood, I should say. Gotcha. Wow. Um, so is it green because you want to be more of a part of the earth or is it green because it's better for the earth? Like how? I would say all of the above. Okay. Um, although many people would say that a concrete vault would be somewhat environmentally friendly. Concrete is, you know, simply water, lime and sand. Mm -hmm. um, but but it is both, you know, you want to be friendlier to the earth and you also don't choose to have those other pieces um, in expense with it. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so it's less expensive than, you know, traditional mm -hmm. casket. Mm -hmm. yeah. And the great thing about living in 2019 is that there's a lot of options, right? There's right. the traditional option with the embalming, if you choose it, the casket, the vault and cremation and green burial. So that's the great, that's the great thing about today is that there are a lot of options for families and for you yourself to choose. Yeah. Do you feel like the reason that we went to embalming you know, has to do with being afraid to, to talk about death and that when you have a funeral, just to you know, make sure somebody sort of looks like they themselves, I guess? Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that contribute to that. You know, the rise of cremation, um, embalming has been around forever, right? Okay. And one level or another. But the civil war in America is what made embalming come to a huge rise, right? Because families wanted their soldiers to be able to come home. And not everyone was embalmed by any means in the civil war, but those that could afford it would be embalmed and would come home so their families could see them and have a good death, a good burial, all things that were important in the mid-1800s. Around the turn of the century into the 1900s, we were beginning to professionalize the death industry. So remember, we have to remember that before there were funeral directors, there were cabinet makers, and the cabinet makers became casket makers, and casket makers became funeral directors. And so they were they went from being people who just made furniture and made a coffin for your loved one to being trained and professionalized, which is an important job, um, to help families take care of their loved ones. But as the rise of sanitizing death and we stopped kind of being in touch with our emotions and we were people were dying in hospitals and not just dying at home anymore. All those things contributed to the rise in the important role of funeral directors in our society. Not everyone can or should or wants to you know, wash their loved one's body at the time of death. It's not part of our society any longer, um, as much as it once was. And so as funeral directors played this much more important role and were trained, then it kind of became, you know, as opposed to having a funeral in your home, that's where the term funeral parlor comes from, right? Because you had the, the wake in your parlor of your own home, then it was moving to funeral homes. All of that became important to us. I mean, and, and that's fair, seeing your loved one for the last time in a natural state being embalmed is a great gift to many people. So others don't want it so much, you know, but it's again, the choice of the family of what they need to be able to say goodbye. And so you've seen this historic rise in all of this since the civil war and since people began to die in hospitals. And I think that we do see some families take back some of that um, with the rise of home funerals, um, and Sarah Williams is this amazing woman in the um, Piedmont that um, does home funerals and helps people with that. 
But I mean, I would say that they're in the minority. Um, you know, funeral homes obviously still and will always play an important role in, in our society. Not every dying person wants their loved ones to have that task of caring for them. And not every family wants or can handle that responsibility. Wow. Well, I tell you, like, I didn't even know for sure what question I was asking there. And and I don't then, know what question I answered. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you wrapped it around a historical context and it's clear you're very, I guess passion is, is the right word. And like, you're very knowledgeable about this industry and you clearly love the, the historical context of it. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an important piece to understand, I think. Yeah. So, uh, you, you mentioned you did some speaking. What do you speak on? Well, so um, I always love the option to go out in the community, take the cemetery with me, pack them up in a little PowerPoint, and share the history of the cemetery um, with book clubs and the Rotary clubs and church groups. And myself and my historian do go out and um, like a, around Valentine's Day, I do a lot of love on the rocks, you know, love stories. And then if we, we've done tours and, and presentations based on certain themes, obviously the Civil War with the state's largest Confederate cemetery here, it's something we talk a lot about. Women's history, we talk a lot about. So based on what the need of the group is, we do take our PowerPoint out and, and, um, and share the stories of the cemetery. Wow. What are people most fascinated by? Um, I think they love the love stories the most. Love stories gone right, love stories gone wrong are always good. I did a tour, um, a tour on site, so not an off-site presentation, but for um, Oaks and Spokes over the Valentine's Day area time frame. It was like the un-Valentine's Day tour. So I talked a lot about broken hearts and we stopped at a handful of graves where they were on their bicycles and the folks were and we uh, told heartbreaking love stories. So, so those are fun. People like those the most. I think that, I think we all can identify with a broken heart. So Yeah, well, okay. So what's a what's a heartbreak story at the cemetery here? Well, we have the grave of Rachel Blythe Bauer, who was part American Indian, part Cherokee, and her husband is AG Bauer, was AG Bauer, the architect of the governor's mansion and they got married. It was considered illegal in North Carolina because she was um, Cherokee Indian. They uh, got married up in D.C. where it was legal. And when she returned, when they returned to Raleigh, the newspaper said she'd be arrested on the spot. The General Assembly called a special session to change the law just for her so that she would not be arrested. She was pregnant when she returned, so that was probably a good thing. And then he gets hit by a train on his carriage in Durham, and he is injured, not killed, amazingly, but taken to Dorothea Dix for some mental health treatment. He returns, and then um, she has a second child with him, and she dies two weeks later of complications. Oh my gosh. The children are then taken one to Ohio where his family is from, one to Cherokee where her family is. Um, and a year later he takes his own life. Oh. Um, and they are both buried here um, side by side at Oakwood. And that is an, it's an amazing monument, an amazing heartbreaking story, but a powerful testament to love, I suppose, in many ways. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Have you kept track of the children? On slow days when the weather's bad and people aren't just stopping in, we do a lot of research. They're no longer on the Cherokee rolls. They are great-great-grandchildren alive because their blood quantum is not enough to be considered Cherokee any longer. But the children um, lived long lives. Um, her Rachel had a granddaughter named for her, which I thought was extremely sweet. And about a year ago, a woman came in. I was in my office in the back, and a woman came in, and I heard her say to the person at the front desk, I'm the great-great-great 
niece of Rachel Blythe-Bauer. And I almost hurtled my desk to run to the lobby to get a look at this woman. And she happens to be the, ch- the genealogist for the Cherokee Nation and was coming to Raleigh on a regular basis to give a report to the state about the genealogical findings. And she it was the first time anyone had ever come from Rachel's family. And it was an amazing moment to take her out there. Now, around the turn of the century, because Rachel died in 1898, um, many Cherokee chiefs and other relatives, I mean, and other Indian tribes um, would come to Rachel's grave and pay homage to her, but no one from the Blythe family had come. It was a big deal for us here to take her out there and introduce her in a way to Rachel. Um, Rachel's photograph is on her head, on her own headstone, and and then that that helped us be able to have a connection with Cherokee, um, with the Eastern Band, and so that we could communicate with them and learn even more information. And so that has been a really helpful connection, all because someone just stopped in. Um, and Rachel is one of our all-time favorite women here, I suppose. It's a heartbreaking story, but one that kind of lives on and and with the family still in North Carolina, pretty amazing. Wow. That is an amazing story. I feel like you've sort of given us a tour already of the cemetery. (laughs) There you go. (laughs) Um, But if somebody were to stop here, what should they go? What should they see? Okay. Well, first, they can always download our phone app in the Google Play Store or in the Apple Store. Um, You can just look up Oakwood Cemetery, and there's an an app that has multiple tours. So you can do women or um, military history, a few others. Even a tree tour is on our app, I believe. But it's kind of hard to see in the glare, right? So I, I understand that phones are not always the best way to look at things. But there's always a map on our office door that you can grab free maps for people to use with no burials on the map. Um, it helps you orient yourself. But I tell people not only to stay in the historic sections. The historic sections are amazing. And until 1930, people were building giant obelisks and, and spending a lot of money on really amazing headstones. And after the Great Depression, that kind of stopped. But not to be afraid to travel into the newer sections, because in the new sections of the cemetery, you'll see a lot of personalization that you don't see in the old sections. So you may see more modern art as headstones, you may see handwritten signatures as their names on the stone. So it's, I mean, my handwriting is much too sloppy to be on my headstone, but, <laughs> but some people have really nice cursive. And you also see more photographs and more things that people valued um, on their stones. Where In the historic section, people would have been mortified if you put something on there that no one else understood. But in the new section, it's kind of a neat mystery to see, oh, what does that mean? We have no idea, you know, whatever symbols on the stone. So, and, and there's some amazing people in the new sections too. So the map will take you predominantly through the old sections, but not to be afraid to wander through the new sections because you'll see some pretty neat epitaphs and stuff. So. Wow. But we invite people to come out. That's important to come, not to be afraid in this place. We do a lot of school programming, adult lifelong learning options. Our oldest program partner is Burning Coal Theater, and they've been doing for, I think, 15 years a production in the cemetery each May on the weekend before Memorial Day weekend, where they interpret the lives of about seven people buried here. And there's a production here on our grounds over the weekend, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. We host a 5K, part of a 5K, the Day of the Dead 5K, is run partially through Oakwood Cemetery. And we put up an ofrenda um, with the help of Angela, who um, owns Centro, the Mexican restaurant downtown. Um, We put an ofrenda up like from the movie Coco, and people can leave offerings um, for those that have gone before us. All, again, in the spirit, no pun intended, of what the place was intended for, um, which is for the living. Yeah. You mentioned Coco. Mm -hmm. And, you know, having small children, I've seen it a lot Mm -hmm. of times. I feel like that's helped out a fair amount in making it easier for people to 
talk to their kids a little bit about death. Mm-hmm. And I think so. And give them a better understanding. I felt not only for about death, but about the ofrenda that's here. People, we've had the ofrenda for maybe four or five years. And um, and people haven't always understood what it is and haven't always found appreciation in it. And that's okay too. Not everyone has to like everything we do. But once Coco came out and people had seen the ofrenda before, then they realized what that was. And um, we got a little bit more excitement as people, it kind of normalized it. Um, we just aren't always aware of other people's cultures very much surrounding death. Um, and how other people are so, or maybe not as afraid to talk about death. And even for my own son, who obviously knows his mother works in a cemetery and has a bit of an understanding of what it is, although to a nine-year-old, it is the tractor and the backhoe and, you know, all the equipment. Coco helped him understand it a little better. And it helps parents, I think, in a way that they're comfortable with when they're comfortable with it to talk about death because they have now language that perhaps they didn't have before. Yeah. Oh, I would totally agree with that. And if anybody hasn't seen Coco, great movie. You got to go see it. It's probably the one movie I cry at every time. Exactly. We own it, so I've watched it way too many times. But, um, it's good. but yeah, the part where, uh, which one is it? Uh, where um, Miguel, is that mm-hmm, the kid? Mm-hmm. Miguel is singing to uh, Coco. Yes. I'm like, oh yes. my gosh. Oh, oh it's a tearjerker. Oh, jeez. <laughs> All right. Well, this this podcast is not about Coco, yes, but we do love it. <laughs> maybe, maybe we'll we'll do a, a movie review of yeah. Coco on a Next. future episode. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Robin, this has been so great to to come here. Thank you for hosting me, hosting Beyond the Obituary here, and you've been a great guest. So thank you so much for your insight and uh, and everything that you do here at the cemetery. Well, thanks. Thanks for including me in the fun. Yeah, absolutely. That's Robin Simonton, Executive Director of Historic Oakwood Cemetery in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a chance, I recommend visiting because it's just amazing to see. And the history of the place is just so fascinating as well. Robin also mentioned that Oakwood teams up with Burning Coal Theater every year. This year's production, Oakwood at 150, is May 17th through the 19th, and tickets are available at burningcoal.org, and we'll have all that information in the show notes. Also in the show notes, we'll have information on the next Death Cafe, which Oakwood and Renaissance Funeral Home co-host. Now, if you're listening to this episode on the day it comes out, well, the next Death Cafe is tomorrow. But there are usually meetups every month, so be sure to check out the Renaissance Funeral Home Facebook page for upcoming details. All right, if you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, review, or share on social media. That would mean so much to us. We'll be back again with a new episode in two weeks. This show was edited and produced by me, Jason Gillikin, for Happy Hippo Digital. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beyond the Obituary.